We're going to be in Psalm 146 this morning. Please turn there with me. Let's pray. Lord, there is no one like you. What we just did in our singing was proclamation and truth telling in song of one who is greater than the greatest king who ever walked the earth. We have lifted our voices. We've tried to stay our minds on you. And this entire room of believers just got to encounter a great God who has caused his name to be remembered. Lord, for a moment, I pray that this room would be still. That we would be able to, to, to focus our minds on who we just got to have an encounter with. pray that you would fill this room with awe. Every one of us is desperately in need. Every one of us is immensely blessed. Lord, I confess that this message, I feel like there's sweet encouragement for your people. And this morning, I just don't personally feel very good. And so, in being honest about that in prayer in front of the body, I call upon you to just help me. Don't let me get in the way of this message. Don't let me get in the way of the beauties that are revealed in Psalm 146 from the psalmist. Lord, we don't just gather here by coincidence. You have us here for a reason, and you have us here to tell us your truth that we might walk in it. I trust you completely, Lord. I trust you to guide us into your truth this morning. We are desperate for the Holy Spirit to come and to give us understanding in things that we would otherwise not understand. Lord, I want to pray for a local church this morning. I pray for Emmanuel Missionary Baptist as I drove by their building this morning to see them gathering for worship. I believe the pastor's name is Lou. Um, it appears they're talking about prayer this morning. Lord, I pray that you would arrest that congregation with the realities and the beauties of the fact that they're calling out to a God who hears. They're calling out to a God and praying to a God who is not far, who is not distant, who is not um, aloof, who is not disconnected, who is not unaware. Overwhelm them with the beauty of prayer in the name of Jesus. Lord, I really, really need you this morning. All of us really need you this morning. Lord, we know that our battle is not against flesh and blood. So by proclamation, bold proclamation of the truth this morning, I pray that you would roll back darkness and encourage your children according to your will and your plan and your purposes. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 146. We're going to read the whole thing aloud, and then we'll jump back into the verses. This morning, we're going to cover verses 1 through 5, and then next week, we will look at verses 6 through 10. So, Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. 
who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked, he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. We'll be spending the next two weeks in Psalm 146. My purpose in going here is to sort of continue our conversation that we've been having in Hebrews chapter 2. In Hebrews, we have seen a church that is hunkered down behind closed doors. That's not why God designed the church. He designed the church that we would proclaim boldly, which is what we'll engage this morning. But the Hebrew church was hunkered down behind closed doors, and the writer of Hebrews has encouraged them to be bold, to step out and realize that they cannot fulfill their created purpose while they're in hiding. It's the same for you this morning. Your created purpose is to put the glory of God on display, and you cannot fulfill that created purpose if you're in hiding, if you're concerned about opening your mouth and speaking. We've been encouraged to marvel at the shocking role that man has in dominion. Man started out with dominion in the beginning of Genesis when we were created in the image of God. He gave us his image and he made it so that we could exercise dominion over all the earth. Then in Genesis 3, our scandalous dominion was damaged forevermore as we set ourselves against God in disobedience and in sin. We found ourselves in desperate need of rescue, particularly a rescue that came from something or someone outside of us. And this rescue and this redemption is found in Christ. That's the gospel. That's why they call it good news. There's rescue and redemption in Christ. And because of that, Jesus is called the new Adam. The first Adam stepped into sin. Jesus rescues, redeems, and is called the new Adam. And that's why we have good news to proclaim. Christ fixed man's dominion problem forevermore and brought salvation to the world. So we're talking this morning about rightly placed hope and biblical boldness. What is rightly placed hope? What is biblical boldness? How do we trust the Lord in such a manner that we are rightly, biblically bold? The call placed on our lives by Christ who has redeemed us is to subdue the earth with the gospel. Subdue the earth with the gospel. Our authority has been restored in Christ. Creation is under our feet again. And we don't have to be enslaved to dysfunction anymore. If you feel like your life is one where you're enslaved to dysfunction, it's just messed up all the time. We don't have to be enslaved to dysfunction anymore. So the conversation that we're continuing is, how do I walk in dominion in my current context? That's what I hope to talk about today from the song. How do I walk in dominion in my current context? What is biblical boldness? What is the difference between being bold and being brash? That's a, a question that Ben posed a couple weeks ago. So to gain understanding in these tough questions, we may go to the Psalms. One theologian very beautifully articulated that one of the great benefits of reading the Psalms is that they present us with patterns of life that the godly have gone through in every age. Hear that. That's what we're reading about this morning in Psalm 146. We are getting to engage patterns of life that the godly, the God-following, the God-fearing have gone through in every age, and it informs us here in this age. All Scripture is alive. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us it's breathed out by God. And it's important for us in this psalm to remember that our God, His breath never ceases. All of the truth is God's truth, and all of it is timeless truth. The psalmist is rejoicing boldly for good reason. What I want us to see is someone who is rejoicing boldly saying, I praise the Lord, my soul praises the Lord, and I do not put my trust in princes. That is bold praise. And so I want us to take a closer look to see what the good reason for the bold praise is. Look at verses 1 through 2. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. To walk in biblical boldness and to exercise the restored dominion that we have in Christ. The child of God is to be a ceaseless worshiper of the Lord. It's not supposed to ever stop. You are to be a ceaseless worshiper of the Lord. Nothing stops that. The psalmist points us Godward. That's his role. 
It's what our song leaders have aimed at this morning. They didn't want to impress you with songs. Their aim was to point you Godward with song. That's what my hope is as well. As we open up the Word and we're reading and we're looking, I want to point you Godward. But the psalmist also sets an example for us, for those who would ever point anyone Godward, which should be the hope that each of you have. We're all hypocrites if we are hearers of the Word only and not doers. We are all hypocrites if we proclaim, you should follow the Lord with all your heart, yet our hearts are far from the Lord. We must ready ourselves in worship if we ever, ever desire to lead others in it. For the worship team, when they practice in the morning and they, they do sound checks, it's, all, it's not just that. There's worship. They're readying themselves to lead you in worship. Sometimes I'll sit in my office and I'll listen to worship music and I'll pray and I'll ready myself to lead others in worship because it's important. There are too many pulpits full of people who are not worshiping the Lord yet trying to lead others in it. This pulpit could be that pulpit any given Sunday, and we cannot fall into that. We must ready ourselves. Before we ever share the good news with someone else, it is imperative that we ourselves first see that the news is, in fact, good. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where someone is trying to convince you of something that they themselves are not really fully convinced of. You ever been in that awkward situation? Someone's just really trying to get you to believe what they clearly don't believe themselves. And what do you do in that situation? What do you do in those conversations? Usually... You find yourself wondering how much more time you really want to give to such a conversation. How can I get out of this conversation? This is foolishness. This is a waste of time. It's the same if we try to lead others in worshiping God while we ourselves are far from Him. They'll look at us and say, oh my goodness, how long do I have to be in this conversation? Spurgeon states it like this. How dare I call upon others and be negligent myself? He calls it negligent. If ever man was under bonds to bless the Lord, I am that man. Wherefore, let me put my soul into the center of the choir. He wants to put his soul into the center of the choir. What we're getting at here is that worship and song is a big deal. God has given us song for good reason that we might be biblically bold, that we might walk in dominion, that we might not be foolish and arrogant and half-hearted in the expression that we give of the good news. Song has been largely minimized and misused throughout the years. There's some songs that have nothing to do with God and just about feeling good. And we call it worship, and it's worship of something, but it may not be God. Sometimes we get here and we, we fall into that thinking that's like, um, well, you know, I'll sing a couple songs and then maybe I'll get focused. Well, I'm hoping you arrive here focused, ready to sing. But singing is a means by which we can become focused. But how much better if from the praise God from whom all blessings flow were the first words you sang this morning. What if our hearts are fully engaged at the first word? That worship is robust and sweet and something is happening there. We're going to talk about what's happening in that. God gives us song. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. He gives us song as a means to walk in dominion and boldness. I want you to know that our singing is not just symbolic. Our singing is not just symbolic. Just as something really happens when a person is baptized, something really happens when we pray, so also when we sing, real things are happening. We're not only responding to God when we sing, although that's part of it. But when we sing, we're calling on Him. In Exodus, He says, where I cause my name to be remembered, I will be there and I will bless you. You know what happens when He causes you to remember His name and in song you call upon His name? He is here and He's blessing you. You're blessed by the Lord this morning here. That's really good news. I'm encouraged by it. I'll keep preaching. We're calling on him. We're also reminding each other of our calling so that we might walk biblically boldly in it. We're reminding each other of our calling. And we're stirring the affections of our soul in a way that simple stated word cannot. By God's design, we can't just all come up here, put the words up and sing, say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Amen. Amen. It won't do it. God ordains the singing. 
God chose this system as the means by which his people would worship him and enjoy his presence. God is incredibly particular about how things are done. If you read through your Old Testament, you will see that to be true. The Mosaic tabernacle was largely silent. Like, the, the place where they would gather to worship, it was largely silent. They would bring with them sacrifices. They'd bring goats. They'd bring lambs, sometimes a dove, whatever. Sometimes people couldn't afford a, a lamb or whatever, and God made provision. He was extremely detailed. And they would bring their sacrifice, and it was largely silent. But in the time of David, God ordained that song be the sacrifice of praise that the worshiper brings. Song's not our idea. It's not like we got bored with killing stuff. We made up song. It's more fun. That's not our idea. God wasn't bored with killing stuff and sacrificing things. That's not what it, at all what it is. God had a plan. God ordained it, and God communicated it through his people. And so it's God's plan that we would gather and sing. And for the record, there are no biblical uh, supports for singing without instrumentation as well. There's always instruments. Always has been. Always will be. Side note. Sorry. So the Mosaic tabernacle was largely silent, but in the time of David, it changed. And, and God ordained that song be the sacrifice of praise that the worshiper brings. It was appropriate and fitting. And songs were not only responses to things already achieved, but often the song itself was a means of making things happen. I want y'all to see this because the psalmist knows this. When he says, I will praise the Lord as long as I live, this will be unceasing. I want y'all to know that song is not just singing about something that's already been achieved, but as you sing, now I'm not getting woo-hoo, mysterious, um, sensationalizing the song. I'm telling you, by God's design, we're going to go look at it in 2 Kings in a second, it's not just singing about things that have actually already been accomplished, but in the singing of the song, God accomplishes something. In the song itself, something was accomplished. We didn't just sing so that someone could preach and something would be accomplished. Things are actually accomplished in the song itself. Turn to 2 Kings 3. Most of you were probably there this morning in your personal quiet times before worship. 2 Kings 3. Now, we're kind of jumping into the middle of a crazy story here for the sake of seeing something happen with song. This is a time in Israel's history where there are two kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdom, and we've got this crazy pattern that you've heard Ben describe as kind of good king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad king, good king, good king, good king, bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king. And it's just, it's, uh, the prophets have grown sort of uh, weary of, of this process of the good kings and the bad kings because the prophets are, are truth speakers and they speak on behalf of God. And so, in 2 Kings 3.10, what's happened is the kings of Israel have decided to go through to, to conquer some other kings because uh, Misha, king of Moab, um, did them wrong, didn't bring the wool of the sheep. It's a real problem we have today. And so they were offended. They were like, let's go and conquer. And so they go, they're going to conquer, and they find themselves in the wilderness with no water for their animals. And they're like, oh, no, what is God doing? We thought we were going to conquer these people. And here we are. We have no water for our animals. Our animals are going to die. People are going to die. What do we do? And so we're jumping into the middle of a crazy story in Second Kings 3, verse 10, where it says, then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? So Jehoshaphat is showing some wisdom and saying, Where's the prophet that we can inquire of to know what we do in this hard circumstance? Then one of the kings, one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha. The son of Shaphat is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha, the king of Israel, and Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? That's a nice welcome, isn't it? Someone comes to you for some insight, some advice. Can you please tell us what the Lord would have for us? And the response is, What? What? 
have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. So in a sense, he says, where's your mama's prophet? You don't want to go talk to your mama's prophet? What about your daddy? There's a mocking tone here, and that's okay. It's appropriate sometimes. It's part of biblical boldness. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you or see you. But now, bring me a musician. For some of you logical thinkers who like to connect the dots and have a coherent movement, you might say, whoa, 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 this is an important decision. I think a musician is just going to mess it up. <laughs> this is a big moment. And, and the fact, let's bring in someone a little deeper, not so artistic. Bring now a musician. And look what happens. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. Now, remember, we're jumping into the middle of a crazy story to see something that happens with song, but real don't miss it. When did the vision come to Elisha? When did the hand of the Lord come upon Elisha? When the musician played. So song is a means of actually things getting accomplished sometimes. It's not only song. But song is definitely a means by which things are accomplished. Here, that's when the vision, the understanding, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha, when the musician played. Psalm 22, which we engaged recently, says that God inhabits the praises of his people. You ever thought about what in the world that means? That's no small thing. That just happened. That means when you were singing just a few moments ago, uh, God was inhabiting your praises and actually doing something to you. He's a God of action. He does things. And if he's inhabiting your praises, it's for good reason. I've mentioned it already this morning, but Exodus tells us that where he causes his name to be remembered, he draws near and blesses us. So one might conclude that if you didn't feel joyful, sing until you do. Hear that. You don't feel joyful, sing until you do. God inhabits the praises of his people, and by the work of his Spirit, he causes the fruit of his Spirit to be active in the lives of his children. You don't feel joyful? Sing until you do. Are you lacking in gentleness? Try singing. Pray in the Spirit that God would help you. If you don't feel close to God, you don't sense his presence, we could sing until we do. If he inhabits the praises of his people enthroned on the praises of Israel, through song, God can restore to us the joy of our salvation. That is why the Psalms also say, praise befits the upright. Just as each of you got dressed this morning in things that hopefully fit, you are here and praise befits you. It is fitting that we should praise our God ceaselessly. In 2 Chronicles 30, 21, you don't have to turn there, but you might write it in your notes and turn there later. Small groups will definitely spend some time in it. But in 2 Chronicles 30, verse 21, it says this, And the people of Israel, who were present at Jerusalem, kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. Why are they keeping that feast? Because in Exodus 23, God said, keep the feast of unleavened bread. It was one of three that they kept as a pattern of life that um, kept them focused on the Lord. They kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with instruments of power to the Lord. You hear that? They're singing boldly. They're proclaiming truths in the middle of maybe some people who don't believe it to be truth. They are keeping the things that God has told them to keep. They're doing so gladly. They're doing so boldly. And they're doing so not just with their voices, but um, they are uh, singing with instruments of power to the Lord. Instruments aren't just meant to be pretty. There's power by God's design. The instruments of music are called instruments of power. 
and they empowered the singers and musicians. And in result, those who they led in worship were empowered. Song has always been a means of seeking Yahweh. Hallelujah, it's, it, it's a call out to Yahweh. So it's also a means of seeking His power. We sing until there is rejoicing with instruments of power, is one way to think about it. So through song, the Spirit builds up the body of Christ and produces His fruit with these instruments of power. Now the whole band is intimidated to come and pick them up afterwards. Burn their fingers or something. Song is also an effective means for preserving stories and wisdom. Go ahead and turn back to Psalm 146. Notice how it says, mentions the God of Jacob. Song is a very effective means for preserving stories and wisdom. There were truths that I knew growing up because they were in a song, and I remember reading them in my Bible and thinking, wait a minute, isn't there a song about that? And it was like I thought that the song came first, and then the Bible tried to write about what the song had said. And then I realized, once I was about maybe 19, that uh, the Bible said it first, and then people wrote songs about it. But it's a way to, to guard our heritage. By mentioning the God of Jacob... It says that our story is the story of a people. We can become entirely too focused and wrapped up in just temporal things here. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. But our story is the story of a people. Um, it's not we're all unique snowflakes with new, fancy, awesome stories. Our story is the story of a people. Our God is the same God who is the God of Jacob. And so through Psalms, we can be reminded of that. So in these first two short verses... The psalmist, who is both a worshiper and a worship leader, emphasizes the importance of praise, and not just a few songs a week. Rather, the praise of the child of God is to continue as long as the life of the child of God. This is a picture of praise that is not conditional. When things go horribly wrong at work on Tuesday, I hope that's not prophetic, but if they go horribly wrong at work on Tuesday, you know what you do? You praise the Lord. You don't stop. We are ceaseless worshipers. Bold worshipers don't stop praising God ever, exclamation point. Whether you're at work, at home, in a crowd, by yourself, our souls are engaged in praise of our God, a praise that must at some point result in joyful and exultant songs from the lips of the worshiper. From the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. As a side note, never in my opinion has there been a stronger encouragement for local churches to make quality recordings of their worship and song so that the worshipers can take that with them wherever they go. What I'm hinting at is a possible meeting between the worship team and the finance team to make this happen for the blessing of the body. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being is a bold statement about the unceasing greatness of our God. Is that your heart? Is that where your heart is this morning? Right now, as we're thinking about this, is your, are you in a place of saying, as long as I have breath, I will praise God? Or is that, is that sort of overwhelmed and, and clouded out by all of the frustrations that you're carrying with you? That's not God's design, and I would encourage you to spend time with the Lord today. Don't hear a sermon like this and be like, yeah, that'd be nice. Go get on your knees and pray and say, God, help me with this. My heart is far from you. I'll pray. Go sing. Go home and sing and know that God inhabits the praises of his people. When we sing here in a few moments after the sermon, ask God, Lord, Make it so that this is true. I see this as your design. Help me to not lose sight of how great you are because of all the other things in life. I want to praise you as long as I have life. Look at verses 3 through 4. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. You may be thinking that the only princes that you know are Prince William, Prince Harry, and the artist formerly known as Prince, and you have no inclination, no inclination at all to put any trust in any of them. 
So we need to bring it to our context. Bring it to your context and think of this verse in terms of the influential. Do not put your trust in the influential. This is a real problem. Do not put your trust in the influential. This is one way that we walk in bold dominion by not putting our trust in the influential. So let's talk about princes for a minute to see what's going on. Princes were of royalty, and they had influence for a number of reasons. They had money. They had power. They enforced laws. And they knew people who made important decisions. So the question is, who are the influential people in your life, and are you putting your trust in them? Don't put your trust in the influential. Influential people are not bad. I want to make sure that's clear. Like, don't revolt and rebel against the influential. Um, in fact, next week in the second half of the psalm, we're going to each be encouraged to try to be people who are influential. So influential people aren't bad, and influential people are not to be avoided. Scripture is just saying that we don't put our trust in them because to do so is a horrible mistake for the follower of God. So who are the influential? It may be a parent. It may be a close friend. Whatever that close friend says or doesn't say will we'll establish what kind of a day I'm going to have. It may be a coworker. It may be someone that you really admire, and it could be someone that you really despise. You don't have to like someone for them to be influential. You may hate the way they move and make decisions, and they have influence, so you may have to put your trust in them even, even so, but that's not what the Bible tells us to do. That's a lie. It may be someone you admire, someone you despise. It may be an authority figure. It may be the person who signs your checks. It may be the government that you live under. It may be the banks. It may be the CPA. It may be the market. It may be your boss. It may be your spouse. The problem with putting your trust in the influential is that they will begin to define your objectives. When we put our trust in the influential, they begin to define our objectives. They become the main directors of your life. Now, it's good, like as Christian people, if you're working for someone and your boss says, you need to do this, you need to do it well for the good of the company, you should like excel, put it on the floor and go work really hard for the good of your company. That should happen. But your boss or whoever else is influential is not the main director of your life. There is something greater that is an overarching thing in everything that you do. So if we put our hope in the influential, they become the main directors of our life and defining our objectives. You are, in effect, trusting them to tell you how to live according to their plans. You're trusting them to tell you how to live according to their will. And you will move in a manner so as to seek their approval. And the reality is that it's just too uncertain. Put not your trust in princes, in the Son of Man, in whom there is no salvation. What does salvation have to do with this? Well, salvation belongs to the Lord. When you lose sight of the importance of your salvation, you will begin to focus on lesser things. Let me say that again. When you lose sight of the importance of your salvation, you will begin to focus on lesser things. You will become overwhelmed by lesser things. Lesser things will be all you put your mind to when the importance of your salvation goes by the wayside because of everything going on in your life. When you cease to worship God and you cease to treasure your salvation, you will begin to worship the influential and treasure what they have to offer. You may begin to focus on material possessions. Your goals will lack an eternal perspective. You may become consumed only with temporal issues, which will inev inevitably lead to putting your hope in temporal people. The influential, no matter how wonderful they are or true they are, are descendants of Adam, and they will one day return to the earth as Adam has done. Whatever plans they had will perish when their bodies perish. But the word of the Lord lasts forever. Psalm 33, 10 through 11 says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. The nations. Not just Hunt County. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations, including those that will be here when you are not. 
Look at verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. God is your help and God is your hope. This means that he has an impact on your life right now and forevermore. This brings about some big questions, I think, that I think they're questions that really beg answers. And so let's, let's look at them soberly. What happens when my help from and my hope in God clash with those who are over me on this earth? What happens when this happens? Well, what do I do as a believer? How do I walk boldly and not brashly when things aren't seeming to line up? What happens when the God of Jacob disagrees with my boss? That's one way to think of it. What happens when the God of Jacob disagrees with my boss? What happens when the government that I live under disagrees with the objectives given to me by my God? What then? What do I do? I could lose my job. I could lose my teaching license. I could lose my business. I could lose my citizenship. I could be deported. I could be imprisoned. I could lose everything. What do I do? This is why the soul-filled singing psalmist urges you to put your trust in the, in, or to not ever put your trust in the influential and only in the Lord. This is why he urges you not to put your trust in the influential. You will likely be tempted to do so at many times in your journey. That's why he says don't do it. You'll be tempted. You'll be tempted to put your trust in the influential many times throughout your journey of faith. But this is why the psalmist urges us against it. I'm going to introduce the first half of a thought that we will finish in a moment. But the first half of the thought is this. To trust in God and not in princes. To trust in God and not in the influential. To trust in God is to keep in step with the Spirit of God. To trust in God is to keep in step with the Spirit of God. What I mean is this. Try to climb into this little silly story with me. Um, imagine you're at work. Imagine you're in another country. Imagine you're at a gas station. Imagine you're at lunch, whatever. And you are presented with the possible opportunity to share the gospel. By the way, those opportunities are all over the place. If you look back on your life and you think, man, it's been three years and I have not been presented with one opportunity to share the gospel. False. Many, many opportunities. For every one of you today, you'll have opportunity. So you're at this juncture where maybe you're in another country, maybe you're in this country, maybe it's a gas station, maybe you're out to eat, and you're presented with the possible opportunity to share the gospel. God doesn't give us a chart that tells us when and how and where to speak and in what manner. It's not like, oh man, there's an opportunity. Hold on, let me get my chart. It's a Thursday, the sun's out. Cool. You are wearing a blue shirt, okay? I'm looking for something. Give me some way that I'll know how to speak. God doesn't give us a chart. He gives us His Spirit. He gives us His Spirit. Turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. In chapter 2, we see the followers of Christ filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a pretty big deal. So I want to look at what was life like after they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Because those who are putting their trust in God are to keep in step with the Spirit of God. So I want to see what was it like after you guys were filled with the Spirit? What happened? And so in Acts chapter 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 13. It says this, see if you can see what happens when people are filled with the Spirit. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Just short side note, when you're sharing the gospel and someone gets greatly annoyed with you, don't be surprised that's happened all the time. 
It goes way back. But let's see what we do. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So they're in jail, but the word's still going forth because they proclaimed it and people are believing it's good. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? They had healed a guy. There was a guy who couldn't walk, and now he could walk. What did you do? By what name? By what power? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, and it's like he kind of turns around and says, and to all the people of Israel, boldly, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among them by which we must be saved. Look what happens in verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Look at verse 29. See if you see the pattern. So the believers, they're released. They pray for boldness. Says, and now, Lord, look upon the threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, we need lots of prayer in all of our movement. The place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. Look at 519, just a little bit over there. Uh, we're going to read 19 through 29. Boldness and readiness to proclaim seem to be inseparable, inextricably linked. A boldness, biblical boldness and readiness to proclaim are inseparable. Now look at verse uh, 519. But during the night, they're in jail here for proclaiming boldly. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to, pre to teach. Usually, when you get busted out of jail, you don't go back to the place that puts you in that jail. It's not normal movement. So they're back there at daybreak beginning to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate, very, very prestigious, prince-like people of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought but when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Huh. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. <laughs> then the, I would love to be that guy who could tell them that. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Biblical boldness. We must obey God rather than men. Turn over to Acts chapter 9. We're skipping over a really important part where Stephen, the preaching deacon, absolutely throws down in biblical boldness. They kill him while a guy named Saul is holding the cloaks of his murderers, and Saul hears the message and now decides, I'll be proclaiming that message. 
I want to follow that God because God has come and, and drawn him to himself. In Acts 9.26, um, it says, And when he had come to Jerusalem, Saul, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were afraid of him, for they did not believe he was a disciple. Rightly so. Their close friend and brother Stephen is dead because he was stoned to death by the people. And Saul was holding their cloaks and approving of it as he was ravaging churches. And so Saul shows up, and it's, he wants to join the disciples. And the disciples are like, ha, ha, hold on a minute. I don't, I don't know about that. Saul, really a disciple? I'm not so sure about that. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had done what? He had preached boldly and in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. Boldness and proclamation go together for those who have the Spirit of God. Boldness and this readiness to proclaim go together. It's not, it doesn't make any sense to be a Christian for years and never be ready to proclaim the good news of Christ. It's not something that should come into your mind every now and again. It should be something that is always on the forefront of your mind if you're keeping in step with the Spirit of God. So we're always ready to proclaim, but I want you to see something that's interesting, very interesting, that happens in Acts 16. Keep turning to the right. Acts chapter 16. The Spirit comes upon them, proclaiming boldly. Oh, you're going to beat us up? Fine. We count that as praise because we're worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And they keep proclaiming, keep proclaiming, keep proclaiming. Biblically bold. You just see these guys, they got thrown in prison, they come out of the prison, and they go back to the place where they were arrested, and they're proclaiming to the people. But look what happens in Acts 16. It's very important that we are fully informed in this. Chapter 16, verses 6 through 7. And then when they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Whoa, what just happened there? That's different. Hold the phone. What did the Holy Spirit just do? Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia? It's a pretty big place with lots of people who need to hear it. Look at verse 7. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Lord, what do you do at that point? Does the biblically bold person with their water pistol, the gates of hell in front of them, do they say, ah, we don't care. Kick the doors open. I am biblically bold. What happens here? This is different. Remember, to put your trust in God is to keep in step with the Spirit of God. And here, we must not miss two very, very important points. The Holy Spirit has forbidden them to speak the word in Asia. If you break that down, that means that at that moment, the reason that the Asian people didn't hear was because of the Holy Spirit at that moment. The reason that the people of Asia did not hear at that moment was because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has forbidden them to speak the word in Asia. The Spirit of Jesus, number two, did not allow them entrance into Bithynia. What is happening here? This is where I want to get to the second half of the thought that I shared earlier. To trust in God and not the influential is to keep in step with the Spirit of God who may sometimes urge you to proclaim when the time is right while at other times preventing you from proclaiming when the time is not right. To truly trust in God is to keep in step with the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God may urge you to proclaim when the time is right and may urge you not to proclaim when the time is not right. That is not cowardice if it's the work of the Spirit. If it's the work of the Spirit. This means that boldness is not void of discretion. Boldness is not void of discretion. We are to always be ready to proclaim. This is boldness. But sometimes boldness is knowing when the Spirit is saying, not yet, not at this time. Time's not right. I actually believe that that's why Paul allowed Barnabas to speak on his behalf. 
If Paul walked into that room full of disciples like, dudes, I am a disciple now. Their guard is going to be up, and anything he says from that point, they are not going to take their guard down. But if Barnabas, the peacemaker, comes in and says, guys, I know it sounds crazy, but let me proclaim on his behalf. I think that that was biblical boldness at work in allowing Barnabas to speak on his behalf so that he might be welcomed with the disciples and move forward in the work of the kingdom of God. This is how God guides us to see the difference between being brash and being bold. Brashness says, no matter when, no matter where, no matter who's watching, I'm going to share the gospel. Which I kind of like the attitude. I kind of like that go-getter. I like that, but it needs to be tempered. Biblical boldness says, God, by the direction of your spirit, please show me if this is the right time to speak. By the direction of your spirit, please use me as a vessel of mercy to be poured out as you see fit for the good of other people. There's a difference between those two. A close friend of mine who lives in another country as a missionary said it really well. He was training someone who was coming to work with him. And he said, look, I don't care if we get kicked out of this country because you shared the gospel with someone, but you better make sure that you're being led by the Holy Spirit and not your pride. That's a big difference. That's very, 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 very wise. This guy had a lot invested in that country. His family was there. They were doing a lot. And he's just saying, look, it's okay if we get kicked out because you shared the gospel with someone, but make sure you are in step with the Spirit and not your pride. That's one problem with American missionaries sometimes is they go over and it's more of a prideful thing. I'm going to win everybody over right now. Like they're off the plane, they're sharing with people in the airport. Sometimes you don't get out of the airport if that's what you do. So don't be led by your pride, be led by the Spirit. And keep in mind that the Spirit forbid them. The Spirit did not allow them. That's what makes you wait. Like, that's why you wait. It's because the Spirit forbid, the Spirit did not allow. To use the Spirit as an excuse for disobedience is blasphemy. Spirit never tells me to speak. Blasphemy. Spirit never leads me to share. Blasphemy. That's not true. So keeping in step with the Spirit is important. Now, this is pretty, pretty cool. Turn over to Acts 19. I want you to see what happens. I get your attention as I hit the mic there? Things driving me crazy. Acts 19, verse 8. Look at what happens. This is Paul, who's been accepted by the disciples and is now moving forward with the, with the gospel. And it says, And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly. I mean, please don't miss that amazing repeated theme, speak boldly, spoke boldly, preach boldly, speak boldly. For three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Three months he did that. That is very different than, I'm here with the gospel, take it or leave it. You go to hell, I wash my hands of you. He reasons with them. He sits and he's persuasive. That takes a lot of patience when the thing that you believe in the most, that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord of every bit of your life and his kingdom is absolutely inevitable and you're sharing that with someone and they're saying, you're crazy. No. We have other gods that are better to do that. That's offensive. That is so difficult to be patient with. And for months, he sat and reasoned with them and persuaded them as he spoke with them. We got to get out of that mentality that's like, all right, I'm going to go and get this thing done. I don't feel guilty anymore. I'm driven by my pride. Whatever happens, happens. I did what I was supposed to. No. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Admonish the idle. Be patient with them all. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Patience is never an option. It's an always kind of thing. And you're not called to just admonish everybody. It's not good to admonish the faint-hearted because by God's design, they need encouragement. So here he reasons with them, persuading them about the kingdom of God. And look at verse 9. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, which happens, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, 
reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And look at verse 10. Look at what verse 10, look at look what happens. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. All the residents of who? Asia. What happened just a few chapters ago? They, they weren't even allowed to speak there, and now everyone is reached. All the residents of Asia hear the word of the Lord. God never had anything against Asians or Bithynians. It just wasn't time for that particular person to share with those particular people. Remember, God has a plan. Any strategy that we try to work through and talk about is, is here, and God's plan is here. So we need to fall in line with what his plan is, and we don't always know, so we have to be in step with the Spirit so that he can tell us as we're moving forward. It wasn't time for the Asians to hear the word. The reason they didn't is that it was prevented by the Holy Spirit, and then here a few years later, all of them, all of Asia, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So we can conclude that it just wasn't time for that particular person to share with those particular people. But between the time that they were forbidden from speaking the word in Asia and the time that all of the residents of Asia heard the word, guess what the disciples and the apostles were doing? They weren't just sitting on their hands. What do we do now? They were proclaiming where they were not forbidden. They were sharing the gospel and they were preaching where the Spirit did grant them entrance. So I want to close with a, a difficult question. So what do you do when the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God who you are trying to stay in step with because you put your trust in God and not the influential, what do you do when the Spirit of God leads you to proclaim when it does not seem safe and when it is risky? What do you do if the Spirit of God tells you to proclaim where it seems unsafe and risky? And I will answer you with the words of the psalmist. Put not your trust in princes. Put not your trust in the influential. And you know what you do? You proclaim. That's what God's people do. If the Spirit leads you in that, you proclaim. He will not always lead you in that. You can't have a mindset that says, well, if it's unsafe and foolish, I must be, this must be the time I proclaim. If the Spirit leads, and so if it is unsafe, it is risky, and the Spirit is leading, do not put your trust in princes and proclaim. You know why? The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He gently leads those who are with young. The Lord is near to all who call on Him in truth. Nothing separates us from His love. He is our ever-present help in trouble. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures throughout all generations. That's why. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. That's why. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Let's pray. Lord, I personally uh, confess that I desire to be more in step with your Spirit. Lord, help us to trust you. As we sing, Lord, I pray that you would inhabit our praises as you say. And I pray that you would allow our thoughts to be on you and the power that you have, knowing that in our finite minds we cannot wrap our heads completely around you. Our thoughts cannot reach high enough to even fully marvel. We'll marvel. We are in awe of your greatness. But help us to be in awe of the fact that we can't fully comprehend your greatness. Lord, I pray that the realities of our God would help us to, to always be ready to proclaim 
Lord, we want to trust the Spirit. We want to move in step with the Spirit. We don't want to let pride and arrogance and entitlement be things that drive us in proclamation of the gospel. But my, my hope and my prayer from the Word today is that it's because we trust you completely and we're in step with your Spirit. So we'll proclaim where you say to proclaim, and we will wait when you say to wait. Lord, there's no human being that would ever come up with a design like this. We'd want a chart. We'd want something that's much less. Lord, I know that the Spirit aims to produce fruit. And I know that in this room, you know the needs of this body of believers far more than we know our own needs. So I pray for love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. I pray that the Spirit would conform us, help us to see things, help our minds, help our hearts so that we can become more like Christ and live a life that is honoring and glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take the supper. And uh, in Exodus 12, God ordains the Passover, where his people are setting something in place that will go on for forevermore, where they are covered in the blood of the lamb, and they take this meal, and, and they remember their deliverance. And then in Exodus 23, God tells us, uh, maybe it's 21. God tells us that where he causes his name to be remembered, he is with us and he blesses us. And then in the New Testament, Jesus with his disciples the night before he is taken into custody says, when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So this supper is all about Jesus. And if we remember him in it, we're blessed in it. And so this is how he ordains it for us in the Word. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Instruments of power. Love it. Um, in specific and right remembrance of our Lord, who's the one who causes us to remember him? It's not something we muster on our own. So we take this with very humble, very thankful hearts uh, with an aim to walk in right biblical boldness because we trust him completely. Take an eat. In the same way also he took the cup after, after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we take this, I want to address a possibility. Since we're talking about rightly trusting God and rightly walking in biblical boldness, I realize there may be some here who are thinking, I don't even feel like I deserve to be in the presence of God. And I want you to know you're in good company. No one you're sitting near deserves that. We don't deserve what he's done. No, no one here has earned the favor that they have from the Lord. So if you're struggling with that, Please know that this blood is a cleansing blood. I'm not saying this is actual blood. Don't go too crazy. But know that the blood of Christ is a cleansing blood. That's what makes us pure. Without Christ, we can't walk in boldness. Without Christ, we have no reason to try to walk in boldness. So humbly confess your sins to him and seek to follow him in the way that we've talked about this morning. So we take this cup in remembrance of him because he tells us to. So in remembrance of Christ, take and drink. Let's pray. Lord, as we continue in worship, as we continue in worship in song, as we continue in worship in uh, sacrificial giving, um, let our hearts not be far from you. Uh, overwhelm us with your greatness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Not going to lie, I kind of wanted to keep worshiping, but that's okay. Um, this, uh,
I mentioned earlier in the sermon that it's, we're hypocrites if we just hear things and we don't actually walk in them. And so, um, you know, my hope obviously is, is that we would all walk in what we've heard. And um, we have, we try not to just pack our schedules with Christian-y things as far as the church corporate movement goes, uh, but we have a few specific things that we really try to, to provide that are helpful to allow us to actually walk in what we um, hear and to be doers of the word and not, not hearers only. So one of those is small groups. Um, we don't have Sunday morning Sunday school here. We've chosen to go with a, um, a design of small groups where uh, families meet uh, in different people's homes throughout the course of the week uh, to talk about this and to ask some hard questions and to hold each other accountable and to pray with each other and to help each other to walk in that. As well, we have a women's retreat coming up on February 24th and 25th. Is that right? Okay. And uh, yeah, I got it. Um, and um, the theme is is that there is, um, we're in need of an abundance of counselors from, from Proverbs. And so uh, for women, not men, um, that is a time that they're going to be gathering at this retreat. Um, today is actually the last day to sign up for it. Um, there is a cost involved. Uh, if cost keeps you from going, don't let that happen. We don't want cost to keep anybody from going. So if you think, I'd like to go, but I can't afford it, you get to go. That's okay. Um, Annie, where's Annie? Is she in here? She's back there. She barely raised her hand. She did this. She actually squatted when she raised her hand. Um, Annie, uh, bold. Remember bold. Just bah, you know. Um, she'll be out here in, in the uh, little hallway here with information if you have not already signed up for the women's retreat and you would like to, or if you have some more questions about it you're trying to decide, she will be there with information to talk uh, with you. Um, I'm going to close in prayer, and then we're going to close with a very serious video. So... Let's pray. Lord, we are uh, thankful for our time this morning. We pray that you would allow us to go and walk in this truth. You are great and greatly to be praised. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.